Let's pray together. Lord, as we come together this evening to uh, come before your word, we want to thank you for uh, bringing us to the point that we would be even interested in giving three hours consecutively of our lives to studying documents written so long ago as read letters like the letters to the seven churches or John's letters to his churches. Uh, we're mindful that we're reading very old documents, really letters to people that died almost 2,000 years ago, and we might say it's the last thing we need to live lives successfully here and now. Uh, but Lord, you have redeemed us from that thought. You have shown us that our wisdom is limited, that our sin is great, and that you love us enough to deliver us from that sin and to give us true wisdom. So Lord, we pray that this night and throughout our careers here at the seminary, and indeed throughout all of our lives, you would give us deeper and deeper appreciation of your victory in Christ and the application of that victory to our lives. May our time together be a small step in that journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, today we're doing, a, first of all, we're going to look at spiritual gifts, which is something that came up at the end of last class. First Peter chapter 4 is where it came up. And it also came up about a week ago when we were looking at the book of James, and we saw toward the end of James that James is conveying to us that the healing of God is still available to this day. And so it seemed right to spend a little time on spiritual gifts. I got a little insight into the way spiritual gifts work and don't work in the church just a few days ago. I was walking around, it was Wednesday night, walking around looking for one of my children who just got out of some youth group activity and bumped into the uh, pastor of children's ministries who also oversees Sunday, uh, nursery programs. And he looked at me and he gave me a great big grin. Now, he's the kind of man that likes to smile. But he gave me a great big grin, bigger than his usual grin, and said to me, Dan, I'm so glad to see that you're in nursery in about three Sundays. And I said to him, I am? He smiled even bigger and said, Why, yes, you are. You and your whole family are in the nursery on the 17th. And I said, We are? And then I said, Oh, no, I remember that. I remember that now. You have this program going where everybody in the whole church takes a turn in the nursery. And he said, That's right. And it's your turn in just three weeks. Now, why was he so happy that I was in the nursery? I looked at him. I said, you look awfully happy that I'm in the nursery. Why are you so happy that I'm in the nursery? And he said something like this. He said, it just makes my heart glad to have this picture of a seminary professor in the nursery holding a baby, you know, kind of spitting up, maybe having to change a diaper. It just fills my heart with gladness. Why would it fill his heart with gladness? Because people think nursery duty is beneath them, of course. And if you've ever had a turn something like nursery duty, or have ever had a turn at trying to fill the slots in your church's nursery, or trying to fill the slots in the cleanup after the Sunday church potluck dinner, you know that's about the last thing most people want to do. And if you listen long enough, you'll find people giving the reason. The reason is, why nursery duty, that's not my gift. The problem is, Nursery duty isn't anybody's gift. At least they don't think it's their gift. 
And so the idea of spiritual gifts is something that can be easily turned to selfish usages. And that's not, of course, the purpose. Let me just ask you to turn back with me, if you would, to that passage, 1 Peter chapter 4. came up very near the end of our last class, in which he describes the functioning of the body of Christ and the need for the church to function in times of persecution by exercising gifts. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. There it is. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10, 11, and uh, maybe a tiny bit of verse 12. Description of spiritual gifts, divided into two parts, says each one should serve others, administer God's grace, speak the very words of God, serve with the strength God provides, all to the praise of Christ. Now, it's very brief. It's not, if you're interested in spiritual gifts... Is not one of the longer passages on spiritual gifts by any means, but sometimes the short passage gives us good insight by this basic summary. Now, I've used the term about six or seven times already, the term, the phrase, spiritual gifts. How many of you have used that phrase any number of times yourselves over the years? How would you feel if I told you that the phrase, spiritual gifts, never once appears in the entire Bible? It's true. The language of spiritual gifts is actually very diverse and very non-technical. We read, for example, of gifts. That's common. Charismata. Some of you might know that word. Ministries. Workings. Manifestations of the Spirit. Spiritual things. Paul even calls at one point a measure of faith. As if you have to have faith to use them properly. And the gifts of... Sorry, the lists of the gifts also are kind of non-technical. We have the one we looked at just now in 1 Peter 4. It's one in Ephesians 4, one in Romans 12, one in 1 Corinthians 12. The gift lists all look different. Peter gives us a very simple way of dividing them up. Two kinds, speaking and doing. There's another way of dividing them up. Paul says some of them are greater than others, that we should desire of the greater gifts. What makes a gift greater than others? Uh, what makes a gift greater is, back to 1 Peter, but also looking at 1 Corinthians 12:31, simply serves more people. The goal of gifts is to serve the people of God. That's why the little scenario where you have people saying, well, I can't do that, it's not my gift, is such a sad perversion of the doctrine of spiritual gifts because people use the concept to get out of serving. Whereas, in fact, the goal is to use them to impel us or to lead us into more faithful service. That reminds us of something else about the gifts. Gifts, like gifts manifesting God's grace, are kind of a funny thing. In a way, a gift belongs to us, and in another way, it doesn't belong to us, right? I mean, especially at the moment of transaction, when you're being given something for your birthday or for Christmas or something. In a sense, there's a brief moment when that gift, as you give it to somebody, belongs to you, and yet at the moment of transaction, you might say it still for one last instant belongs to the person who's handing it over to you. That might be a good way of thinking about gifts as well. 
there's something that are, that's ours, and yet it's not really or fully ours. It's not simply just for our enjoyment or for our pleasure. We receive something of God, but it's not a possession of ours. It's not a trophy. I hear people talking about, well, I have this gift and I have that gift, and my gift mix is this, and I have these five gifts over in this cluster, and it makes me wince. Because they're not understanding, at least it seems like they're not understanding, that the purpose of gifts is not to give you a higher sense of identity or worth or significance, but rather to serve the church. The best thing we can do, as 1 Peter 4.10 says, is to be stewards of God's gifts. Receive it, take care of it, 4, 9, 10, 11 says we should be good stewards, beautiful stewards of what God bequeathed to us. Well, what is a gift anyway? We could look at this duo, uh, healing and doing. Let me give you a definition of what I mean for just a moment. A gift, I will say, is a capacity and a desire for ministry given by God for regular and fruitful use in the edification of the church and the extension of the kingdom. I believe I have that down there for your note, for you in your notes. So you should be in good shape. Now let me just walk through some of these just a little bit. By capacity, I mean that there is an aptness for activity. That we're ready to do. We're ready to go. Those who are gifted to teach are apt to teach. And they edify people when they do so. Those who have the gift of leadership actually lead. And when they try to lead, people follow. And it seems normal and right for them to be, quote-unquote, taking over a project. In fact, it doesn't feel like they're taking over. It feels like that's just the way it's supposed to be because they're good at this and they seem to know what they're doing. And maybe others have known it for a long time. If somebody has the gift of encouragement and you spend a little time with them, after it's over, you're actually encouraged. You feel better. Even if you heard some bad news or heard that things would be difficult, encouragers have that ability to say no with a smile and to say, you know, that won't work, but God loves you anyway and something wonderful is going to happen. And uh, you just feel like that was a privilege to be told no by an encourager because they encourage. That's their gift. So there's an aptness. Now, that overlaps with the second idea, namely there is fruit when somebody has the gift. You know, it's possible to be intelligent and well-trained and have a mastery of the English language or whatever language you're speaking in, and yet not bless the church. It is possible to be a wonderful musician and be possessed with a wonderful voice, huge range and, and uh, control, and yet not bless the church by your singing. How can that be? Well, if the person who's articulate and intelligent and has mastered the language uses the language to put down others, to exalt himself, to foster divisions, to put uh, himself over others, to promote false doctrine, it's not going to help. Even somebody who sings, uh, surely I think probably most of us have been there, uh, who sings a good hymn and sings it well, can fail to edify completely, fail to edify the church. If, for example, their singing uh, is done in such a manner with grand gestures perhaps, and... Uh, you know, just a certain manner or style, but the attention is drawn all to themselves. It would be very concrete. There are some churches that are happy to clap for people, 
And there are other churches that don't like to clap. And there are churches that are in between that don't usually clap, except maybe when the kids are doing something, you know, at Christmas and Easter, and then everybody claps for the kids because they're so cute and you just want to encourage them. You know it's not going to go to their heads in a bad way. But there are some churches that are in between and usually don't clap, and once in a while they do. And you almost get the feeling sometimes that some people are looking for the applause. They do everything they can to get the applause, and they get the applause. And you say, that's right. You were shooting for it. You wanted to put on a show. And you did. But whether the church is edified is another question. So it's possible to be talented and not actually, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, do what's the goal of a gift, to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort the church. It's possible to be talented and not prepare God's people for gifts of service so that the body might be built up into unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son. Another thing about gifts is there's ordinarily a desire. There's a pleasure in exercising a spiritual gift. Now, this is not absolute. You may have a gift and occasionally be miserable in the exercise of your gift. Who could, how could you justly be miserable when edifying the church, exercising a gift? Can you think of anybody? Yes. How could that happen? Okay, when you have to confront sin, that's the most clear example we could think of. We could think, for example, of, say, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, as well as a contemporary pastor, who have to give words of judgment to the people of God. And they don't want to say it. They don't want to give their message, but they can't hold it back. They have the gift, they have the word from God, and they are, they're grieving, they're not happy. And to this day, of course, someone who has... Uh, a responsibility to teach and has to confront sin may be deeply wounded by the need to confront sin. One can think of other cases, but ordinarily there is a delight in the use of a gift. Uh, those who give, for example, Romans 8, 12, 12, 8 rather, Romans 12, 8 says, Romans says they should give with simplicity. That little word with simplicity uh, means, that you may say, what does that word mean exactly? What that word means is, you give, and we talked about this with James a little bit earlier. You give, and it's just a gift. That's all. You just give, and it's simple in that you don't want or expect or need anything back. And in fact, you even somehow manage to convey, here's something for you. And I don't want or demand or need anything back. Here's a gift. That's giving with simplicity. That is to say, they take pleasure in simply giving. Do you know what I mean? Can I, maybe I'll speak from personal experience just a tiny bit. I like to tell people, I teach, when I go to a conference, I do, the, I do the teaching part for free. What you pay me for is to fly in the plane, pick up my luggage, pack, sleep on a lumpy bed, and so forth. That's what you pay me for. Uh, teachers will often say, I teach for free. You're paying me to grade the papers. A minister may say, I preach for free. You're paying me to try to get the janitor to do his job or to get those balky deacons to, to, to do what they should be doing. Okay? Now, what that's, that voice is saying is, or a choir, remember, you know, it's just love to sing. Don't like to travel to choir. Love to sing in the choir. What they're saying is, this is my delight. This is my pleasure. And that's the way it should be when you're exercising a gift. You should have a desire, a love, a gladness 
in the exercise of these gifts. And all this happens to advance God's kingdom, not just his church. I've been using church examples so far, but not just the church. Also advances all of God's work all throughout. I'll put it to you this way. By bequeathing spiritual gifts upon his church, God is decentralizing the leadership of the church. So it doesn't fall too obviously in the hands of one or two or three people. But it's in the hands of all the people showing more clearly that it's God's church, not the pastor's church or the elder's church or something like that. Another way of putting it is, when God gives gifts to people all over the church, it's making the church more theocentric as opposed to anthropocentric. That is to say, we look at what God has given, we say, we say that. We say, behold... But God has bequeathed upon his church. See how he's equipping his church instead of looking at one or two or three people who have a high profile and get a lot of praise. Gifts, properly recognized, decentralized, and spread out the praise. Now, how many of you have taken a gifts test at some point in your life? Let me do it a different way. How many of you have not ever done one? Okay, we got look around. We've got about... Maybe 10% of the people here have never taken an inventory of their spiritual gifts. And perhaps some of you filled out a little thing, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and I fall in this slot. How many of you did something like that? Fall in a slot, and I come up with, you know, I, my number over here was 41, and that means I have this, and my number over there was 13, which means I should stay away from that at all costs. So that's, that's a spiritual gifts inventory. And, and sometimes people get the idea that, uh, that the gifts are, are very hard and very concrete, but I don't believe that. I believe there's a certain fluidity to the gifts. Uh, for one thing, none of the lists are identical, which suggests to me that we don't have a hard and fast set of categories. Again, Peter divides into just two. You're, you're either gifted to do or to, or to talk, and one or the other. So we could say it's divided into two parts. And then there are other things like we tend to list like hospitality or skill and art and and uh, music and so forth, or maybe skill in preaching, don't seem to fit exactly onto any gift lists. So, not hard and fast categories. And along those lines, I just want to put a little something on the board here for a moment. Um, along those lines, I'd like to suggest sort of a threefold division of the way we should think about this. Um, it's one thing to function with regard to a certain gift, and then you can have a role... And you can have an office. If you're wondering about your uh, possession or your use of God's charismata to you, it's important to recognize, back to my opening little illustration about the nursery, that every Christian should participate in almost every gift. I'll pull out a list here. See if you would agree with me on this just for a minute. Some of the lists uh, that come up in 1 Corinthians 12 include administration, Discernment, faith. Those would be three from 1 Corinthians 12. You also have teaching and uh, powers and healing. In Romans, we have other gifts such as uh, service and uh, shepherding or leading, giving, hospitality, Romans 12, 13, I take it that way, encouragement. Isn't it fairly easy to see that with regard to most of these gifts, every Christian should do them at least some of the time. Think of just a few of them. Discernment. There's a gift of discernment. 
gift, the person with the gift of discernment might have an ability to read people, maybe recognize somebody who's, you know, have a funny feeling about somebody who's hypocritical a little bit faster than others. Somebody with discernment can, can not only have a, a, that sensation that there's something wrong with a sermon or a book, but can ferret out what that is. So they might, they might be way ahead of the rest of us in detecting something that's amiss or in seeing the true path. But isn't it also true that every Christian should exercise discernment? Shouldn't we all test the spirits? Shouldn't we all test the teaching that we receive? In fact, uh, we are commanded to do so, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20. Let me give you another one. How about encouragement? Encouragement is a spiritual gift mentioned in Romans 12, 8. Should we all be encouragers? What does Hebrews say? Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, which means then that every Christian should participate in the gift of, of discernment. How about evangelism? Evangelism is a gift, right? But shouldn't we all be ready to give a reason for the faith that's in us? Shouldn't we all be witnesses to Christ? Now, maybe just pick one more. Do you know faith is on the gift list? What would somebody who has the gift of faith be like? What's the gift of faith like? Ability to... to Keep on trusting in God even when everything looks dark. Ability to take a great risk with confidence because you're just sure God's in it, even though maybe the odds don't look so good. The ability to rest in God, go to bed at night instead of staying up till 4 or 5 a.m. to try to work it all out. Say, if the Lord wants to bless it, He'll bless it. Maybe those are some signs of the gift of faith. I don't think I have that gift. But those are some, maybe some signs of the gift of faith. But certainly we should all have faith, Right? And so, I want to say to you that as you think about spiritual gifts, we all ought to be willing to function in every category. We all ought to be willing to administer or to discern or to encourage, to share our faith in Christ, to exercise faith, to shepherd, to teach, to lead, to show hospitality, to give gifts, everybody. And then second, some people get kind of good at something. You may... Uh, you may have the experience I had it once, I guess, maybe only once in my life. Somebody asked me to do something, and I did it, and they said, You know, you were good at that. I had no idea. And I said, I had no idea either, but I think you're right. I think I was kind of good at that. I don't know if you had that experience. Maybe you didn't say it. I was too brash. I was only, 19, I was only 20 years old, so give me a break. <laughs> have you had that experience? And what that means is that maybe it's time for you to do it again and maybe do it repeatedly. Maybe get a little bit of skill, get near somebody who uh, could be a mentor or a guide to you in, in developing or honing something God's given you. And then if you do it not only semi-regularly but very regularly, you may enter into the office. Now we think especially of offices like elder and deacon, and uh, that includes maybe being a teacher and so on. But there are others. You know, you might be uh, somebody who has the gift of service, which is another gift in the list. Might be in charge of the of the uh, you know the food budget or the food pantry or the mercy ministry of the church. Even though that person, man or woman, doesn't have any ordained office in the church. So we all function. Many of us should be willing to operate in the role from time to time. And then, if you have a clear capacity from God and a calling, then you eventually turn to an office and you exercise your gift in an office. That is one way of looking at it. 
Now, let's see. David, would you hit the light for me over there? Okay. All right. Just a little way of looking at things. I know you can't see all this, but one way of dividing it up is, uh, is to look at gifts, first of all, as speaking gifts. I said the basic categories are speaking gifts and doing gifts. So there's speaking gifts, and you can divide them up between public and private. And also you can divide them up between more natural, more supernatural. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But the public gifts would be, I know the print is a little bit small here, would be teaching. And in the past, we have apostleship. And something that's real private, yet is still a speaking gift, would be encouragement. And over here, tongues. I'm not going to get into questions about tongues today. If you don't mind, I'll leave that for another class. Over here, you can divide up the gifts also as to whether they are more obviously supernatural or seemingly more an extension of somebody's natural gifts. Now here, of course, we'd say something like teaching looks like more an extension of your natural gifts because you say, well, that person is, you know, I mean, they're smart and they're articulate and, and they've studied hard and they prepare and they're diligent. So you could say, well, they worked hard and they've always, you know, they were a good student even in third grade and so now they're a teacher. Over here you have tongues and that's, that's very private and, and supernatural in that you don't, you don't speak in tongues because you're smart in third grade or because you studied for five hours and you are diligent in your preparation. An apostleship would be public, but also very supernatural, called to that by God. Some are in the middle, evangelism, knowledge, wisdom, uh, and you know they can be public or private. Shepherding would be a little bit on the private side, perhaps, and more natural. I move to the next one. You don't really have to... Uh, prophecy, interpretation, distinguishing spirits, those are all highly supernatural. I'll put it up again during break, if you want to see it during break. Then there are doing gifts. Again, we can divide them up as public or private, and more supernatural, obviously supernatural. They're all supernatural, but I'm saying obviously supernatural. Or more natural, using ordinary means, preparation, and so on. So the public gifts here would be things like administration and leadership. And privately, you're a doer if you give and you show hospitality and you have uh, creativity, perhaps, and ministry of mercy. A doing gift that's more supernatural would be, through the apostles and prophets, the gift of miracles. It's very obviously, highly supernatural. And uh, then there seemed to be a separate gift, perhaps, of healing, which is also highly supernatural. On the more natural side, administration, you plan. And uh, giving, of course, you may plan your giving, so those are more natural, more in the natural category. So that's just a way of, of another way of, of looking at the gifts, dividing up the gifts. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that we operate maybe in quadrants. So you say, well, I'm basically a doer, and I'm a private person, but I still like to plan things. So you may move around between the gift of of giving and the gift of mercy and the gift of hospitality. You, you may have sort of a, a tendency to do all three of those and shift from one to the other as your life changes. Another person may, um, may be over here more in the public realm, and, and they may administer and they may lead as need be. I do take those to be a little bit different, administration being more organizing, leadership maybe being more visionary and getting people to join in with you. And you can maybe move back and forth between those different gifts. Uh, which is what I want to say to you 
when you, um, and we can have the lights back on, I guess. When we uh, think about our spiritual gifts, they're not a stagnant thing, but I think God tends to give us a public or private orientation, more natural, more supernatural, more speaking, <clears throat> or more doing. And I, I think we can move around. Can I again speak personally? I was a pastor for five years and uh, really had to do everything, had to do the function to some extent, the role of almost all the gifts, at least slightly. Uh, when I became a college professor, I became far less um, devoted to evangelism, personal evangelism. It's not that I never did it anymore, but that was pretty much a thing of the past. Uh, I, I spoke, but I didn't do it personally. So that kind of uh, disappeared to some extent. Uh, then, for example, when I came here to teach, when I uh, began to, uh, and shepherding, of course, fell down as well. And when I began to teach Greek here, I moved away from big picture to little picture and, and uh, you know, focused very strongly in college and here on the gift of teaching and honed that as best I could. And about three years ago, I became, I became the dean here. And uh, I never would have claimed the gift of administration. And so I just, I just happened to pick this up before class. Maybe some of you can see this. We had, a, we had our accreditation visit just a few days ago here. And I got a name tag. And it has, it has a juxtaposition of words that I, you want to read it for everybody, that I detest. The juxtaposition is administrator and my name. And, and in my three years as dean, I've only used the word I... An administrator, lacking quotation marks, as this sentence has them, one time. And it was a sad thing. My wife caught me. She said, you slipped. And I said, oh, no. I function, and I exercise the role. I think of myself, as a, if, if you ask me as a dean, what am I doing? What spiritual gift? Let's say I don't have the gift of administration. I would say that, that whatever I do that works out is still making use of my teacherly nature. But the way I lead is by teaching and ideas and presenting ideas. That's, what, that's, that's at least the way I see it. So I see it as still staying vaguely within the same cluster, you see. Still always in that idea of, of, of public and of, of talking, speaking. But then I move around within that, okay? And that's the way it would be, I think, with most of you. You look for your gifts. Don't look for some static category. And I think that's a part of the idea that this is not for us. You have a sort of an area of God's blessing. Everybody does. But you're willing to move around in that area and do things you don't really like all that much or wouldn't be your first choice if you've been called upon to do it and the church or the kingdom seems to need it. That's my idea. Leadership isn't just the same thing as an office. There are many kinds of leadership. And we can talk about... Um, uh, I'd like to distinguish between three things. Influence, authority, and I'll, I'll do it like this, and I'll say power. Now, I'm going to use power here with a little bit of a negative connotation, okay? Some people think that when you have the office and you're a leader, then you've got power. Then you can call the shots. Then you can get things done my way at last. And that's, that's really a misconception of the way we should think about this whole topic. Instead, we should recognize that everybody can have influence, even if they're a brand new Christian, even if they're very young, even if they have no standing anywhere, you can have influence. Because 
the truth always has its way. And how many of you here have kids? Most, a lot of you probably here have kids. Um, if you have kids, you've been rebuked by your children. You know, Daddy, you shouldn't be sad. Don't be sad. God will take care of it. You say, well, you know, honey, you're right. God will. Thank you for reminding me. Because I was too sad. And, um, I mean, they recognize that, you know, mommy or daddy got more sad than they should have got. Right? And so they encourage. And you say, honey, you're right. You have taught me uh, today. So even a child out of the lips of, of babes, out of the mouths of babes, anybody who is willing to work and has some knowledge, knows how to use it at the right time, don't be sad, daddy, don't be sad, mommy, can have influence. You can influence anybody who's over you if you have knowledge that they need, timely, if you're willing to work, get in there and do it, if you're willing to work faithfully, reliably, cheerfully, without a lot of, of um, you know, oversight, you will have influence. You will be a leader, I like to call it a leader from below. You don't have any recognition, but you're still a leader. People start to look to you, depend on you, and so on. Authority is maybe uh, the ideal where you, have, where you have a blend of this. You know, you have the ability to work and the ability to use knowledge, facts, skills of one kind or another. And you have some recognition. You have been called upon, back to an earlier question, to exercise a role. You've done well. People say, hey, you know, you did that well. Would you please do it again? Or even in office, they say, would you please be trained and, and, and we'll put you on the list and you'll be in the bulletin and so on. Maybe an elder deacon or maybe a you know, coordinator of youth groups or something else. So that's when you have the, the office slash recognition and the skill and the experience and the giftedness and so on. And the, the error is when you take it over in the direction and say, ah, you see, it's mine and, and that I'm using here, not that power is bad, but I'm using power in a pejorative sense of grasping for power. 